Start recording. Maybe Katie will stop talking. Um. <laughs> Why are you just brushing your hair? Because it makes it grow. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, brushing your hair makes it grow, according to Katie. It does. Look it up. <laughs> All right, I'll Google it later. It stimulates the follicles. Stimulating your follicles. That sounds inappropriate. Okay. I feel like okay, that means you just rub your scalp, not your hair. <laughs> anyway. I I feel like it might have. I feel like I might have looked it up, and it has something to do with like pulling on it. That pulling on it. I don't know. Okay. I I'm not a doctor. Um, okay, I believe it. So while Evan is not here today to interrupt, I have two dogs sitting on the bed next to me that might end up barking at any any moment. So. It's exciting. Aww. Dogs are cool. They are cool. I don't know so, how you get Ollie to be so quiet when you're recording. Ollie doesn't make a lot of noise ever, really. Um, yeah, unless I have like his ball and I'm like squeaking it and won't give it to him. Like he doesn't really make any noise. Interesting. Yeah, or, my dogs like bark at. If they think something is outside, they're like, we must bark for two hours straight. No, Ollie, Ollie will hear a noise outside and he just like aggressively pierces his head through the blinds <laughs> and is like, what's happening? <laughs> well, my dogs are not very well behaved at all. So they're just like, they're very loud. Well, one, so one's an Australian shepherd mix. So Ooh. she's got a borker on her. And then we adopted later my little i don't know what you call her her face is smushed in she's kind of fluffy um but so she didn't bark when we first got her but then peyton taught her how the australian shepherd so now they both just and they feed off each other when one starts barking the other doesn't even know why the other one's barking but then she starts barking oh my god it's very loud the other day we were trying to get him to like howl on command and so i was doing like there's like certain things that you can do to get him to like howl a little bit like I said with the ball mm-hmm. um and so I was just like <laughs> making it making that noise and then he would howl and then I'd be like once he howls say speak and give him a treat Jarrell like we're gonna train him into howling <laughs> oh god don't open those happen. floodgates it just like, let him stay quiet no, like, he did it he did it for a good like for as long as we were doing it that day, like he would do it, and now I'm like, speak, and he just looks at me so perturbed, and I'm like, all right, well. Oh, my wow. grandma's old dog could howl, "I love you." Aww. She'd be like, "I love you," and the dog would be like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" That's so I, cute. I think that's so. That's what I want Ollie to do. I see videos of huskies howling, or howling on command. All these things. He does. He does nothing. Hmm so so annoying (laughs) kids what are you gonna do set them free just kidding (laughs) (laughs) oh god (laughs) do not set your kids or your dogs free guys (laughs) no keep them indoors unless you have a backyard then it's okay to let them out 
Exactly. Uh, but it is nice being around my doggies. That's nice. And my Sorry. ancient cat, who is 22 years old. Are all of your siblings there? No, just my little sister and little brother. Because okay. Becca is away at law school in Colorado. Oh, yeah. Becca, why haven't you reached out so we can hang? What the heck? She's very busy studying. Whatever. So, I'm busy too. I will make food. I will make time for food. I'll, I'll send her your number if I haven't already. And you guys can set something up. Cool. Discuss the podcast. Cool. She's so nice. She left a comment saying that she really enjoyed our last episode. And it made me really happy. So I commented back. I was like, thank you very much. This is not nepotism at all. Oh, was that her? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, some stranger likes our podcast. No. Strangers do like our podcast, though. We have some people out there. Yeah. Well, no. Once you guys start listening to our podcast, you're no longer strangers. You're our friends. Our family. Or so, something like that, yeah. You know. You know. Fine. Whatever. Um. Anyway... I guess, I feel like we just didn't have much banter there. That was only four minutes. Five minutes. Usually we're talking for like 20 minutes. It'll work. (laughs) I know. I'm just like emotionally drained. Um, Traveling during the time of COVID is not ideal. Um, Yeah, how was that? It actually wasn't bad. The plane was empty. The airports were fairly empty. Everyone was wearing a mask. I was super extra, so I got, like, one of those fancy... Yeah, I sent you a picture. I got one of those fancy masks, and I um, had, like, science goggles because I heard that you can get COVID in your eyeballs, so I was like, I definitely don't want to do that. Um, And then the second I got off the plane, I changed my clothes in public, um outside in the airport garage <laughs> um, hey, but I yeah it's like it. yeah it is what it is some people might have seen my butt it's fine um and then yeah i've just been you know seeing relatives and friends but socially distanced so i feel like it's exhausting when you're planning to see someone because there's just so many considerations that you have to take in and this is like the first time i'm seeing my relatives since christmas um but just like making sure that everything's outside that you're far away wearing masks when needed it's a lot it's definitely a lot but i'm happy to be here in the chicago lands so happy to have you here (laughs) yeah yeah thanks we're still not in the same area but i'm closer (laughs) now to you closer time zone too so, yeah, only yeah. one hour off, which made planning a little bit easier. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. So, guys, guys, we would love for you to leave us a review on um, iTunes or leave us a five-star review if, if you feel that we deserve it. Hopefully we do. Um, and if you leave a review, we will donate a dollar to the National Center for Victims of Crime. So it's a win-win all around. We get some... Um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? You make us look nice to other people. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's going to come to me like in a year when I'm in the shower. I'll be like, oh, that's what I was thinking of. Um, it like helps people find our podcast, want, maybe want to listen. And then we're also donating a dollar to a very good cause. So leave us a review. Yes, please do. 
Say nice things. Please. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> we want to get us broke, guys. Come on. We want to give all of our money to to the national victim. I need to learn the um, whatever the. The acronym is that like the thing? Yeah, it's like the National Center for NCVC. Victims of NCVC. Mm-hmm. NCVC. Okay. Okay. Um, it's gonna be a fun one today, guys. Can't you tell that I'm like super with it? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. I still suck at getting my case done on time, but, you know. (laughs) Same. I had a dream last night that we were recording and I didn't finish my case all the way. So I was having to, like, make stuff up on the fly. (laughs) I could never. I can't improvise. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that we both are prepared today because... I was worried that I was going to have to just, like, pull this out of the air. Because it, it was like when I'm like, this news, art, news, art, news article is saying one thing. This one's saying something else. No one's giving me, like, the full story. <laughs> so it's just is, like, your, is your case, like, old-timey? Like, in the 90s, early 2000s. Ugh. I mean, but that's basically old-timey now. I mean. If you really think about it. I Isn't guess. it weird that the 90s weren't 10 years ago? <laughs> yeah. 30 years ago oh that's so sad but yeah (laughs) um i finally was able to find a one good source that had like tons of like it i guess archived a ton of different news articles so i was able to just use oh that's good that's good yeah Yeah, my case is from the 1600s so um lots of conflicting information lots of um things that people were just like and and a twist to my case is that it was kind of a cover-up of connecticut Uh being shady about their history with witches so Uh that's well since we just dropped that little gem (laughs) this week we're doing Go ahead. Witches. Witches. It's still October, guys. It's still spooky time. We gotta keep with the case. Although this was my last idea, so I don't know what will happen next week. <laughs> but we obviously... And it, uh, I personally believe that the witch trials, I mean, as far as we know, were like the OG women criminals. Yeah, I think, well, uh, Eve, if you want if you want to go that route but okay um well um, but yeah maybe the first so. that we have some documentation or you know the first in obviously there were probably women criminals since the beginning of time but this is i think where potentially maybe where it could have started or started to become um more well yeah because i don't think women 
back then were allowed to do much. So it, and you know, since they were so very much considered second class citizens and maybe didn't have access to things, it probably, they probably didn't have access to commit a lot of crimes. And but generally, women are more nonviolent than men. Well, maybe? speaking about like witch trials and crimes like that, and I'm sure you'll get, you'll go more into it in your case. Um, weren't i guess my understanding is like these are mostly women who like did nothing wrong and then (laughs) they were just like hey she looked at me funny she must be a witch they did nothing wrong other than being disliked by other people and maybe partaking in sinful activities that the men who partook in the sinful activities with them were not, you know, persecuted at all. Don't don't worry. But if women were, you know, drinking or having relations with men unmarried, then then you know what? They were obviously a witch. So obviously. obviously. Um, so I think it was just a way for people to um, you know, persecute people they didn't like very much or women who were, in in my case, there are some women who had the potential to gain wealth from others or maybe um, increase their so- social standing. People didn't like that. So they had to put a stop to it the only way they knew how, which was to be like, you're a witch. Okay. Powerful women. Yeah. Well. Um, so I guess I'm going, am I going first or are you going first? Me. I believe it's you. Yeah. Finally. (laughs) Don't act like it's not every other time that you get to go. (laughs) Exactly. Um, okay. So I usually do a little bit more digging before I pick a case, um, this week, I had to kind of expedite because Rachel was flying. Like I, pick, I just picked a case that, I, like, I searched witchcraft and I just picked a case. And so, wait, I one hundred percent take the blame for this. Um, I'll share the backstory. So, as you guys know, <laughs> I've recently switched to posting on Instagram. I got a letter board because I'm that kind of extra. Um, so, <laughs> I've been, she's the perfect kind of extra. Okay? I've been trying to keep like our Instagram aesthetic. And the last time I went to upstate New York, I didn't bring it with. So I asked Natalie ahead of time. So it's all my fault. And fun fact: your person took all of my L's. So I had to like figure <laughs> out how to spell my person's name differently because I didn't have enough L's left. So you should have just spelled her name correctly. <laughs> Instead of with all of these L's, in my opinion. But yes, well, take take it away. Explain. I don't know anything about this woman, and I'm sorry if her case ends up being terrible. But like, no, no, no. What is? What did your mother? How dare she? (laughs) So I. So yeah, our topic is witchcraft, and I was like, all right, I want to find somebody who did a crime related to witchcraft, and so. I found a list and I picked one that was most interesting. And I was like, I'm sure I'll be able to find information on that. Ugh, became a nightmare. But so I have decided to do the case of Cheryl Dell. And so in regards to the letters in her name, I am not going to name shame. All right. My name is spelled with an H. That said, I know in America, they're like, that's weird. But in other countries, it's actually very normal. France, Germany, whatever. But 
I don't think in any country this is normal. Um, it's spelled C-H-E-R-R-Y-L-L-E. And so the entire time I wrote, I was writing this case, because I usually use their first names, every single instance of me typing her name is spelled differently because I just cannot get the right number of R's to L's. It's a um, lot of letters. <laughs> it's a bit unnecessary. Um, yeah, but it's Cheryl, so we'll go with that. So, starting my case. <clears throat> in the 1960s, the United States was experiencing a draft in which young and able-bodied men were being conscripted into the military to join the war. Uh, 19-year-old Scott Dell was like, no thank you, ma'am, and fled to our neighbors to the north, Canada. Um, so once in Ontario, is it Ontario or Ontario? I believe it's Ontario. Okay, Ontario. Sorry, can my Canadian friends. Um, once in Ontario, Canada, he met a 17-year-old named Cheryl Margaret Dell. Or no, Cheryl Margaret something. It wasn't Dell yet. <laughs> <And so laughs> what a weird they, coincidence. <laughs> they soon fell in love and they married. And eventually they moved to a little Canadian village named Killaloe. <laughs> Which, I don't know, the name that funny? sounds funny. I don't know, Killalo. <laughs> it's just funny to me. Um, ignore me. I'm Whatever you out. say, man. <laughs> um, so, yeah. They got married. Her name became Cheryl Dell. And then they moved to Killalo. Um, and so for the next decades of their relationship, they had several biological and adoptive children. Um, People who knew the couple described Cheryl as a very attractive woman who had a very flamboyant and outgoing personality. Same. Yes. Yes. I'm kidding. (laughs) Um, She was known for telling very elaborate and outlandish stories that weren't always too believable. Um, It seemed like she was possibly embellishing the truth, um, perhaps to make her more impressive in the eyes of other people or... Possibly she just liked telling stories. I feel like we all probably know someone who, for some reason, just likes to be a bit of a fibber. Um, and so I think that could have been the case with Cheryl. And so neighbors describe Scott as being a loving husband and father. Scott wasn't perfect, but to friends and families, he did appear to be very much in love with Cheryl to the point that he actually forgave her for leaving him on two occasions, one for another man and once for a female friend. Um, It seems that Cheryl was also somehow very well known in this like small area for being at the center of a quote bisexual love triangle um while married so yeah despite all of these different things um scott kind of looked past that and he really loved her and wanted to maintain a relationship with her um and so Scott being a great stay-at-home dad I guess I don't know if he really worked but somewhere described him as a house husband so I don't know. Oh my um, god, my dog is snoring. I'm so sorry. I can hear that. <laughs> Her um, face is all smushed up. She can't help it. <laughs> so Scott, he cooked. He cooked food using um, vegetables that he had grown in, in his own vegetable garden. He baked bread and he doted over he and Cheryl's children. Scott was diagnosed with cancer. And so knowing that the treatment would affect his speech, he even went ahead and like preemptively recorded audio of himself reading bedtime stories so that he could play them for his children um, while oh my God, he was stop. in treatment. 
So, Stop. yeah, like a very, seems to be a very, like, loving father. Um, despite this, at one point in the marriage, Cheryl claimed that Scott was abusing one of the children, particularly that he was sexually abusing one of their adopted daughters. And so for the sake of the children, authorities removed them from the home and conducted an an investigation in which they found that Cheryl had made the allegations up. Later on, like years later, um, in the court trial that we will talk about later, um, the daughter who was the one who said that who i guess who was at the center of this um in terms of like cheryl saying um scott had sexually abused her testified that she only said the things that her mom had told her to say and that she was really sad that she Mm -hmm. had to say those things because she knew her dad didn't hurt her um so and i love that not cool on your part, Cheryl. And so after more than 20 years of marriage, Scott and Cheryl separated in 1992, which was not the year we were born. (laughs) Wasn't alive yet. Cool. Uh, So during this time, Scott very much pined for his wife and he hoped for a reconciliation. So yeah, so Cheryl was moving on and she met a woman named Gay Doherty. And this was like a random detail that I saw in one article, but I didn't see it repeated anywhere else. But it said that they met at like an incest survivors group, but nowhere else did I see anything in their his in like Cheryl's history about having a history with incest. So I don't know if that was correct or um, if other articles just didn't go into detail about that. But that could possibly speak to some of her past trauma. Um, And so she and Gay were described as being inseparable until Gay started to feel that Cheryl was suffocating her emotionally in the relationship. And so they broke up at Gay's behest and she would later testify that following the breakup, Cheryl was emotionally unstable and attempted to overdose um, after the breakup. And so... Um, soon after that, Cheryl entered into a relationship with a woman named Nancy Fillmore, who was her and Scott's children's nanny. Nancy and Cheryl's relationship moved quickly, and soon they moved in together, while Scott remained at his old farmhouse, and the two co-parented their kids. Gay had a fondness for Scott and Cheryl's children, so she kept in touch with the both of them, and sometimes she um, would even spend time with the kids. And so... We're fast forwarding from 1992 to 1995. So several days after Christmas in 1995, Scott was supposed to leave his farmhouse to pick up his kids, who I think Gay was visiting. This is where the details are a little blurry for me. Um, But he didn't pick up the kids. And so Gay was worried about him. So she went to his home to check on him. And when she got there, the lights were on, the Christmas tree was lit, love songs were playing in the background, and Scott was lying there dead. <gasps> she she noticed that his fingers were blue. Um, there were several pages of notes written by Scott um, that were found beside the telephone, and there was a nearly empty bottle of wine as well. And so... The only indicators of what happened on the night that Scott died were written in his notes found at the scene. Um, So some of the things that he wrote were, what did you think was going to happen if I drank a bottle of wine? Listening to the music we used to listen to. 
I'm going to think about you and me together. I feel like holding you close to me like never before. I feel like making love to you. I feel like all the bad stuff would go away. I was probably supposed to die of cancer, but my life was spared. I don't know why our lives are going by so fast. And so it seems like he is referring to his estranged wife, um, almost like he's writing a letter to her. Um, And so for whatever reason, police kind of suspected that possibly his estranged wife, Cheryl, had something to do with that night. Maybe there was like a phone call, maybe like they had gotten into a fight, something. Um, And like that could have led to Scott's death. Um, But other than the notes on his desk that were very ambiguous, um, there wasn't much that pointed them in her direction. So did they believe it was a suicide were they suspecting foul play yeah so ultimately they did rule the death of suicide but there was kind of like an eyebrow raised like this is a guy who everyone who like yesterday everyone says was like super cheery and like there just weren't signs that said we do know that sometimes the signs aren't clear when people do Mm -hmm. um uh, attempt suicide or die by suicide so there there was just kind of like an eye raised but nothing concrete th- to really point them towards um, any true foul play meanwhile Cheryl and Nancy continued dating until 1997 when things turned bad between the two of them sometime around March of that year Nancy had to go as far as taking Cheryl to court to get her belongings back Nancy also began revealing truths about Cheryl during their time um, together. And so she was particularly revealing these things to law enforcement. So Nancy told police that Cheryl sometimes locked her children in their rooms and drugged them so that she could neglect them. Another friend, Kim Knott, also testified to this corroborating Nancy's claim. Um, Kim even said that on several occasions that she had to, um, like, step in and, like, wash the children's sheets because they were drugged and in their beds, like, urinating on themselves. Um, And so uh, Kim also told investigators that Cheryl regularly spoke, I wrote speaked because I don't know how to write. (laughs) It happens. So Kim also told investigators that Cheryl regularly spoke negatively of Scott leading up to his death and she had explicitly said that she wanted him dead kim alleged that cheryl even mentioned getting him getting a hitman once but as far as she knew nothing ever um nothing ever transpired in that regard and so um however compelling none of this information was enough to bring cheryl in That is until Nancy told police that in 1995, right around Scott's death, Cheryl asked Nancy to go buy some antifreeze, which Nancy did. Nancy also told the police that Cheryl asked her to purchase a specific bottle of wine, a Piat Dior. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I don't drink wine. Very (laughs) fancy, very fancy. As you can tell, we are quite sophisticated people. Oh, yeah. And so this was the exact same bottle of wine that was found nearly empty in Scott's farmhouse that day. Um, And so Nancy claimed that she watched Cheryl mix the antifreeze with the wine that she would later give to her husband as a gift. Cheryl told Scott that she had a dream that that he was going to have spiritual visions after drinking wine. So he took the wine. Naturally, someone says you're going to have spiritual visions if you drink this specific wine. 
you take the wine, I guess. That would be a reason. Um, I would be like, I'm not touching that wine. I'm dumping it down the sink. I don't, I don't want that. Yeah, I mean, I guess in this case, this is a man who's like heartbroken. His wife is openly in relationships with other people. And like, maybe he was like, oh, this could be, you know, like her olive branch. This could be like a gift. And she's just trying to connect with me or something like that um that's true there definitely is a power dynamic in this relationship that yeah she was perhaps taking advantage of yeah um and so she also told scott that she was going to help him through his spiritual journey and she gave him some books on the subject including the celestine prophecy um and so i guess cheryl was like an amateur I don't know, spiritual person, witch, whatever. Um, I don't know if she really believed in this stuff or if this was all just part of her charade or something. Um, And so I guess Scott knew that she had some experience with like the spiritual stuff and was like, okay, you want to take me on a spiritual journey? Uh, You're my wife. I love you. I want to go on this spiritual journey with you. Um, And so... In a videotaped interview, Nancy said, I was freaking out, and Cheryl kept telling me to shut up. Oh. (laughs) I spelled Cheryl wrong. Of course you did. Anyway. Who could spell that name? Then Nancy said that, um, that Cheryl told her that if she told anyone what Cheryl was doing, no one would believe her because Nancy would be seen as the jealous lover who must have killed her partner's husband, herself so that she could have cheryl like without her husband in the picture such Um, manipulation also i think that they would suspect the wife first before they would suspect anyone else but i think that at the the very like least they would expect uh, suspect both of them you know like right um and so i just i guess for the, the thought of even being brought in was enough to make nancy um not come forward And so Nancy also told police that Cheryl gave Scott the wine and Cheryl got out her witchcraft books and lit candles and was saying weird rituals and prayers. That is a direct quote from Nancy. Um, And so I don't know what she was trying to conjure up or whatever. Um, And so that night, Cheryl called Scott hourly to see if he had started drinking. Um, When he told her that he had just started drinking, Cheryl told him that she would stay on the phone with him all night or um, turn like her answering service off, which I guess at the time, if you turn your answering machine on, that means you aren't getting calls. I don't really understand the details of how that part worked, but this is Canada. I don't know if things were different in that country. I don't Um, remember that. (laughs) We were like one years old, so who knows? Yeah. So... She said that she would just be available all night for as long as he needed to talk. And so for the rest of that night, they were on and off of the phone for the better part of nine hours. Um, And so he was just drinking the wine and he was telling her how he was listening to their old music, songs that had been special to them in their marriage. And that reminded him of happier days. And he was just talking very like hopefully about their relationship. And so the last time that they spoke was 5 a.m. when Scott told Cheryl, you're here with me. I can see your angel spirit. 
Nancy overheard this exchange and shared it with the police. And so it's believed that very soon after that, what he was really seeing, you know, he was basically like his body and organs were stopped, were no longer really functioning because of the um, antifreeze and like the toxicity oh, in his gosh. blood. And so he very soon after that, he died. Um, and so this information was enough to lead share, lead to Cheryl's address address this information was enough to lead to cheryl's arrest of course she maintained her innocence but investigators were confident that once they brought in nancy to the stand as as their lead witness it would be an open and shut case however five months after going to the police and before um the case went to trial nancy was killed in a fire this fire however was no coincidence Cheryl had met an 18 or 19 year old boy um, I couldn't tell the age from Ottawa with whom she began a sexual relationship with she then convinced the boy Brent Crawford was his name to set the to set the fire that killed Nancy before Nancy could testify in court the boy would later confess to his parents to police and in a written note of what happened the night he set the fire he would also take back some of those statements and then like claim other things and so i think he was very impressionable impressionable he was preyed upon by this woman and i deliberately do call him a boy even though he was 18 or 19 because have you met an 18 or 19 year old um this is a woman who was in like her near nearly 40 years old um and i think she yeah, I think she took advantage of him and he didn't know what to do. And yeah, I feel bad for him. He also um, stood trial for um, setting the fire that killed Nancy. Oh, that's and, rough. And yeah, so, my little brother is 18 years old and it is appalling to me how young 18 year olds actually are because I think back to when I was 18 and I feel like I'm like, yeah. I'm finally an adult. I'm so old. I'm so cool. I know exactly what's up. But then you realize that 18-year-olds don't actually know anything at all. For sure. And we've talked about that a bunch of times. Your brain is still in the process of developing. Exactly. But he's like a child to me. It is impossible to believe that that's like what an (laughs) 18-year-old is like. But yeah, no, I, I hear you. And so in the case of murdering Scott... Uh, the trial against Cheryl proceeded. The prosecution noted that Cheryl had many motives um, for killing Scott. So she could have, she wanted Scott out of the picture so that she could continue her relationship with others without him, you know, pining for her, making her feel guilty. She also wanted sole custody of their children, something that she had tried to um, like falsely get in the past by accusing him of assaulting one of their children and also wanting any money that could be gained through his death. Um, and so Cheryl fabricated several stories to cover up what she'd done. Um, sometimes she claimed that Scott's cancer had returned and so he was dying. So it was the cancer that killed him that night. Maybe like the alcohol was just too much for him. And that's why like there was so much toxicity in his body because cancer is toxic, something very elaborate. Um, And then sometimes she would also claim that he must have killed himself because the cancer came back. And so, like, he didn't want to have to deal with it again. Um, None of these things were true. 
And so despite her best efforts and the best efforts of her attorneys, Cheryl was found guilty of murdering Scott. Soon after, Cheryl was also charged with first-degree murder in connection to Nancy's death. She pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of convincing Brett to intimidate Nancy, basically saying, well, I told him to intimidate her. I didn't tell him to set her on fire. Um, Okay, Cheryl. Yeah, and so um, in the end, she was sentenced to life in prison, and I read an article from like 2016 that her parole was denied and i didn't look for other um articles that are more recent than that and so as far as i know she's still in a canadian prison somewhere um so yeah that's the case of cheryl who i don't really know why witchcraft was used in this case but um yeah it sounds like she had a lot going on and that there were some potential to me, hearing that she did all these terrible things but was still able to maintain so many relationships, to me, it says that she probably had a type of personality where she was able to really captivate people and, you know, I think similar to um, many psychopaths, people say like, oh, this was like the nicest person or like the most amazing person you'd ever met. You could never believe that they were capable of doing all these things because people get so good at mimicking human emotions or knowing exactly what the right thing to say is because how else would she be able to have all these people like fall in love with her? And the fact that her husband was so in love, even after the way she treated him, that's just really hard to believe. And very sad. Yeah. Super, super, super sad. Um, yeah, I even reading her about her relationships with just like her friends who she was like letting know that she was doing these cruel things to her children and then like leaving like somehow like leaving it up to them to like clean their kids urine and different things like that. I just was very yeah, very surprised at how it this woman behaved with her like with her friendships. They were under her spell. <laughs> <laughs> that was horrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just thought of it and I had to say it. It's a witch themed episode. We Hey, there was also like a random bit in the case or something that I had read about like when she had first got into a relationship with Gay, she went out and got like some sort of wax. And, like, made it into, like, a voodoo doll and, like, started performing, like, voodoo rituals. And so she, I guess she had some weird, um, I won't say weird, but she had some kind of preoccupation or she, with, like, ma- magical things. I don't, I don't know why, but. Right. Which taken by itself, you know, no judgment. And especially if you're harnessing it for good, then you know live your best life but once you're using it to harm other people that's not our favorite thing exactly well i'm i'm kind of glad you like took it a different route because i did obviously a really historical case and i will disclose that historical cases are not always my favorite but I really enjoyed researching and learning about this one. 
So today, I'm going to tell you the tale of some witches, some witches from New England. But it's not the witches you're thinking of. I might have said earlier and given it away, but this was a script I wrote, so I'm sticking to it. Um, So today, (laughs) I'm here to tell you about a case that took place before the Salem witch trials. Uh, It is the case that Connecticut tried to sweep under the rug to protect their reputation. In the end, 43 cases of witchcraft were tried and 16 people were executed. So let's take things back to May 26th, 1647, when Connecticut's first citizen was hanged for witchcraft in Hartford, home of Richard and Emily Gilmore. Later on. They are the best. (laughs) Um, You know, obviously they never actually lived there but um, since emily is the daughter of the american revolution that means her ancestors were probably probably involved in this they probably participated so shame on you emily (laughs) how do you not know that her ancestors were the ones that were being accused i have a feeling (laughs) i'm pro emily i know that you're not no i'm pro i am i am pro emily I'm more pro Lorelai, but I am pro Emily. I do love her. <laughs> I don't know. I've as I've aged, my opinions on Gilmore Girls have changed. But anyway, um, so the citizen, her name was Alice Young. She is sometimes known as Asha Young, which is what I'm gonna put on my Instagram because, like I said, Natalie, your person stole literally all the L's of my letterboard. There was like what five L's total in her name. Yeah, sorry. Something like that. Anyway, uh, sometimes she's known as Alice Young, A-L-S-E. So I don't know if that's pronounced Alice, Alice, old timey names. Um, I'm going to refer to her as Alice. Um, So Alice was born in the 1600s and resided in the town of Windsor, Connecticut. Today in Windsor, you can visit the Vintage Radio and Communications Museum of Connecticut or the Connecticut Valley Tobacco Museum. But back then, it was a hotbed for witchcraft trials, and something as simple as an accusation could land a person in the gallows. Alice was married to a man named John Young, and they had a daughter, also named Alice, which Lorelai named her daughter Lorelai. So maybe it's a Connecticut thing to do that. Who knows? Yeah. (laughs) Um, There's not a lot of information surrounding the reasons why Alice Sr. was accused of being a witch, but most sources agreed... um, that there just wasn't a lot of evidence to to back up these clips. Someone's moving a chair. Uh, most sources agreed that, you know, whatever reason that they had wasn't enough to back up the claims of witchcraft. So one possible explanation for her arrest is that there was an influenza epidemic in the New England area and the people needed someone to blame. Alice was potentially next in line to inherit land from her husband, and there's nothing more terrifying than a woman who might have access to power. Um, So, like I said, she did end up being hanged, and the curse appeared to haunt her bloodline, as her daughter, Alice Jr., which I'm not sure that you do Jr. in the case of women. I think you should, but... You know, whatever, whatever. So her daughter, Alice, was accused of witchcraft 30 years later in Springfield, Massachusetts. Her daughter, Alice's punishment, was not well documented, but at the very least, we know that she was not hanged. So that's the first. Um, I did 
do, I didn't cover every single case, but I did do two more. So you guys are getting three for the price of one. Um, so <laughs> in 1646, Mary Johnson, a servant, was accused of being a witch. Mary would not confess to a crime she didn't commit. So authorities had to take matters into their own hands. They whipped Mary and she was tortured by a local priest until she confessed Mary said she had familiarity with the devil, and even more horrifying, she confessed to sleeping around. Funny, you know, they just somehow, they didn't track down all the men that she was sleeping with so that they could hang them too and accuse them of being warlocks, male witches. Funny how that works. Whatever the terminology, but you know, Mary, uh, she was 100% to blame, and witchcraft was the only explanation. Um, at the time of her arrest, Mary was pregnant by a man that she was not married to. <gasps> the horror. Um, but at the very least, they kindly decided to wait until after she gave birth to execute her. Her child would be given to the prison keeper's son, who would raise the child until it turned 21. Um, so in Mary's case, there was no formal trial, and there wasn't even a documented accusation. Women were especially at risk during this time for doubting themselves when it came to witchcraft or dealings with the devil. Mary had gotten in trouble in the past for stealing and was whipped. Um, so during her confession, Mary expressed guilt over her discontent with having to do chores, you know, with her position in society. Um, she was also... Like, I just said that. I went off script and then I just said it next. So um, she was unhappy with her social standing, which is not surprising considering she was pretty close to the bottom of the totem pole. Um, side note, too, during her confession, Mary said she had killed the child. There is no information about the child anywhere else and the child was not mentioned again. So I'm wondering if maybe Mary had a miscarriage or maybe she had a child that died of some... Um, mysterious illness that they didn't necessarily have an explanation for um or maybe there was no child at all and she had just confessed um because she was literally being tortured um all speculation on my part but it seems unlikely that someone would be able to get away with just murdering someone's child and not having it be bigger news um so along the lines of that explanation obviously false confections are a thing that we still see to this day, unfortunately. Um, but I think that there was also, in Mary's case, the the people had convinced her that she was dealing with the devil because of her discontent with her situation. Or, you know, she thought, well, I am, you know, seeing men, so I must be a terrible person. I deserve to, to die. You're absolutely right. This is witchcraft which is just extra twisted and terrible um, and very, very sad, especially if there was something going on with this child, if the child did die by accident and Mary had convinced herself that it was somehow her fault. Um, not cool. Very not cool. Um, so next I'll talk about the case of Catherine Harrison. So Catherine Harrison's greatest crime was being disliked by her neighbors. Catherine was born in England in the 1650s and ended up later on moving to Connecticut. She became rather wealthy after inheriting her late husband's estate. When Catherine was accused of witchcraft, 
There were around 30 witnesses who stepped up to testify. They accused Catherine of fortune telling, of harming others by using magic. <laughs> what? Did you hear how I just said that? Magic. Magic. <laughs> what? Magic and transforming into a ghost. One of her neighbors said that Catherine must be a witch because she had never seen a woman with so much quality linen. And there was no way that a woman out there could possibly spin this much fine linen without there being witchcraft involved. So basically, she was just, I don't know, jealous of her nice clothes. Um, Catherine also practiced medicine, and people were suspicious that she'd started using her knowledge for killing. Um, Playing devil's advocate, everyone was dying back then, and their ideas of medicine were kind of questionable. So maybe people were just dying maybe people that she were seeing just you know i don't know were they still using leeches back then (laughs) or like oh you have a cold here's some cocaine um you know (laughs) we just didn't have a great understanding of diseases and things so i think most doctors the treatments that they had were just like here's some drugs i hope you get better not like drugs that would help them but right they weren't using (laughs) evidence-based treatments back then so um it is what it is uh so in may of 1669 catherine was found guilty of witchcraft after two years of depositions so the case was referred to the connecticut general to um, have there be a, a special session that would be overseen by governor john winthrop jr who was the son of the governor of massachusetts This was good news. The governor generally avoided talking about witchcraft cases, uh, or the governor generally avoided taking witchcraft cases to trial, and it appeared that he didn't really participate in all of the hullabaloo. Um, He wasn't around for the original witch panic trials that took place in Connecticut, in Hartford, and um, while he talked a big game about witchcraft, he didn't really appear to believe in it. In fact, the governor himself also saw patients for healing sessions. He was interested in researching chemicals for the benefit of medicine, mining, and industry, and it was believed that he brought the first telescope to the colonies and was potentially responsible for the discovery of Jupiter's fifth moon. So it's okay when a guy does it, but when a woman dabbles in medicine, she's a witch. Um, So during Catherine's trial, John and his assistants decided there needed to be a better way to approach these witchcraft cases. Maybe he could see that those people who were accused of witchcraft were often women who were second-class citizens at the time, were often poor and, you know, quote-unquote, less desirable citizens. And it's, you know, just really great now that, that these days we treat those in underserved communities or, you know, people with lower incomes with respect, and they are not at all at a high risk of being over-policed or you know falsely accused of crime or anything like that so Are you having a stroke <laughs> guys you guys i know it's difficult to imagine <laughs> that anything like that could happen <laughs> i i was being sarcastic i made a funny i know 
Good job, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So anyway, John decided, hey, we need to have some structure. You can't just say someone appeared as a ghost or they haunted you as a dream. Uh, That's spectral evidence and is basically hearsay. So in order for us to take your story seriously, we need to have multiple people corroborating the same story and you can't just be like, oh, this person appeared in my kitchen and cursed the... I don't know. Think... You had to have actual physical evidence. And um, I bet that was such a, like, a radical thing <laughs> during that time yeah. period. Like, evidence? <laughs> More than one person? What? I if can't just say she's a witch. witch and I hate her and <laughs> then she dies. Um, so, in this, it was then that the burden of proof was shifted um, to the prosecution rather than being the responsibility of the defense, which is supposed to be how things are done nowadays, too. Um But after making these changes, Harrison's conviction was overturned, but they did recommend she leave town for her own safety, which is kind of a bummer. They're like, yeah, well, I guess you're not a witch, but everyone here wants to kill you anyway, so you should probably leave. Um, So her and her sister ended up going to, to New York. Hopefully they had happier lives there. And after Catherine's release in 1670, there were a few blips of witchcraft cases, but no other people accused of witchcraft were ever executed in Connecticut. Um, So in October of 2012, descendants of those who were executed in the witch trials sought to move their ancestors, uh, or sought to have their ancestors post-humulus, 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 I can't even say it now because of But yeah, posthumously, post After they've been dead, they pardoned <laughs> them. Word. Okay. Um, pardoned those who um, were... Blah, 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 now I lost my spot. Pardoned by... They wanted them to be pardoned by the Con- Connecticut government, but the motion didn't end up being passed. Um, earlier, a couple years earlier, in 2007... Addie Avery, the descendant of Mary Sanford, one of the witches, quote unquote, who there wasn't that much information other than she was executed for dancing around a tree while drinking liquor, which if that's the case, I think that we all should be arrested for witchcraft and executed because who hasn't drank liquor and dance around a tree? I mean, come on. Um, so um, since there was, I think what had happened from what I could tell in my reading was that the Connecticut government was like, oh, we were still under British rule back then, so it's not our responsibility to, you know, say they weren't witches or whatever. You're going to have to take it up with the queen. Um, So Addie Avery had tried to get the British government to uh, acquit uh, the accused, but I I think they kind of passed it off too. Um, And finally, kind of a... This isn't even a happy ending. I don't know why I said that. But um, less depressingly, in February of 2017, the town of Windsor in Connecticut passed a resolution to clear the names of Alice Young and another victim, Lydia Gilbert. The town arranged for a memorial service to take place on the 370th anniversary of the execution of Alice Young. So let's have a little conversation about the power of fear. So back then, the people of Connecticut were subject to endless instability. It's a little unusual that the Puritans, who placed a strong emphasis on education and prudence, would even consider the idea that witchcraft existed. But there were a lot of bad things that could happen to people uh, for the settlers for no reason other than bad luck. Uh, 
So their sheep could be attacked by wolves or bears, and um, there was fear that the Connecticut River would flood and destroy their crops. They were scared of the nearby Native Americans, and there was always the looming threat of another pandemic. So the people of Connecticut needed order, and a really good way to get uh, order is to unite against a common enemy. So I know that there are a lot of speculations about what actually happened with the Salem witch trials. I know that apparently, like, they believe that there might have been, like, magic mushrooms or mold that affected the people. But it sounds like in the case of the Connecticut witches is that they just didn't like certain people and needed a reason to band together and get rid of them. Um... So I think we see a lot of parallels today of there being fear of surrounding underserved communities or people who have lower income to to view them as, you know, or I think they're often, not often, what's the wording I'm looking for, is that they can be susceptible to... Um, being potentially over-policed or viewed in a negative light by society, which, mm-hmm. you know, I think we see throughout the past, I don't know how many years, but there's been false confessions of people that have been, you know, kind of taken advantage of. And we've covered some of those in, in our show. But um, it's just unfortunate and a little depressing that as I was reading through this case, I'm like, wait, we still see that happening today. They might not necessarily be accusing people of of witchcraft, but certainly there are other reasons that we, yeah. as a society, go after people that aren't actually dangerous or, um, you know, whatever it might be. So we haven't really changed all that much, but at least we're not hanging people for witchcraft. <laughs> at least. <laughs> At least. Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.